Welcome to Theater Reviews from My Seat. This podcast is based on my website, www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. My goal is to speak about my theater experiences in concise summaries without plot spoilers. You should get a sense of what a particular show is about and why I do or do not recommend it. I am New York City-based, but often review productions in other cities. Another goal is to share my love of theater and hopefully inspire you to see a play, musical, or theater company that you may not have known about. In today's episode, I'm going to share with you my theater-going experiences from July of 2018. On Broadway, we're going to talk about The Boys in the Band, its 50th anniversary revival and first time on Broadway with a star-studded cast. And we're also going to talk about a musical, Head Over Heels, based upon and inspired by music from the Go-Go's, a band from the 1980s. We'll cover two productions from Second Stage Theater, the off-Broadway production of Mary Page Marlowe, and on Broadway, their second outing, Straight White Men. Finally, and busily, we're going to attend all the readings and productions of the New York Musical Festival, known in short form as Nymph, and we are going to cover 12 productions and 9 readings in that festival between July and August. As always, you can visit the website for up-to-date or archived posts at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. In addition, you can register to receive emails for all new posts as they're added. So now let's get started. We begin with Mary Page Marlowe at Second Stage Theater. The title character of Mary Page Marlowe is an unremarkable woman in many respects. She may also represent every woman, or someone well known by Tracy Letts, the terrific playwright of the Pulitzer Prize winning August Osage County. Mary Page is played by six different actresses at various ages, Blair Brown, Anne McGeer, Mia Sinclair Jenis, Tatiana Maslany, Kelly Overbay, and Susan Porfar. This play explores a life imperfectly lived, filled with regrets about decisions made along the way. The play opens as Mary Page is informing her two children that she and her husband are divorcing. She is moving to Lexington, Kentucky, where she has a new job. The scene is tense, tight, and believably traumatic for the three of them. Pivotal life moments are considered throughout this somewhat absorbing piece. The scenes that are excellent are moving studies of this woman and her evolution. Other scenes are less successful, such as the one between young Mary Page and her mother Roberta. Her daughter is rehearsing a song and mom is bitter and just plain mean to her. The tone felt oddly out of place with the rest of the play. Yes, the mother has had a hard life and wants Mary Page to have a thicker skin to survive, but the characterization of Roberta, played by Grace Gummer, is played harsher than perhaps intended as written. This relatively short play starts meandering about halfway through and then abruptly concludes in a very unsatisfying finish. A new character is introduced in the final scene that adds nothing to what came before. I'm guessing that the play ends unremarkably to underscore an unremarkable, unsatisfying life. Mary Page Marlowe is an interesting life study which feels unevenly observed. Next up, we'll talk about our first entry into our visits to the New York Musical Festival. This section is about three of them, Legacy, Badass Beauty, and Brad Knows Nothing. The New York Musical Festival is celebrating its 15th anniversary this summer. 
Nymph nurtures the creation, production, and public presentation of stylistically, thematically, and diverse new musicals to ensure the future vitality of musical theater. This year's offerings include 12 full productions, usually five performances each with sets and costumes, and also nine readings, which have full casts but use scripts. A nymph fact for you. Four nymph shows have made it as far as Broadway. Title of show, Next to Normal, which at Nymph was called Feeling Electric, Chaplin, which at Nymph was Behind the Limelight, and finally In Transit, at Nymph it was called Along the Way. Over the next four weeks, I reported on what this year's festival had to offer. First up is Legacy the Musical. This was a reading. Ambitious in its historical scope, Legacy the Musical imagines Martin Luther King Jr. taking Martin Luther through an analysis of his life while both men sit in purgatory. We see young Martin Luther in the early 1500s as he ascends from a monk to the most read German theologian of his time, aided by his translation of the Bible from Latin to German at the time of the Gutenberg printing press. Many major life highlights are covered, not all of which put the founder of the Protestant Reformation in a holy light. Even addressed is his anti-Semitic treatise on the Jews and their lies, later quoted extensively by Third Reich Nazi propaganda. Legacy currently sits uncomfortably as a musical dramedy. The story is serious, but it tries a bit too hard to replicate the jauntiness of Hamilton, including the use of hip-hop. The emotions from Dear Evan Hansen are also noticeable in November Christine's score. Legacy feels like a good school-age musical in its current form. The choice of material suggests a darker edge, less silliness and easy laughs, might make this concept really fascinating and relevant in our era of overt political and religious manipulation. Our next nymph offering, Badass Beauty, The Rock Opera. This was a full production. La Quinta Prince plays alpha female in the musical rock concert Badass Beauty. With her collaborators, she wrote much of the lyrics and co-wrote the music for this autobiographically inspired journey of her life. We travel from her childhood to the development of her multiple coping personalities to relationships, career, and band formation dynamics. Two of her alter egos, Badass, and beauty help present this material in word and song. Miss Prince might be best described as a buxom, long-haired Oprah Winfrey in a cougar-patterned bra. She is a formidable stage presence. Why Oprah? Quote, you never told me that you loved me. You no longer have the title daddy. Quote, no one wants to be alone. Quote, I'm so broken I try not to show it. Thankfully, it's not all super serious. I took to that gig like an 80s band takes to distortion pedals. Badass Beauty presents some interesting ideas and has conviction. To reach the next level, the various internal personalities, including the four horsemen alter egos, need to be more fully developed. The score decently rocks, but is not nearly as memorable as alpha females' vocals. The third and final entry into Nymph Part 1 is a reading of Brad Knows Nothing. The first scene of Brad Knows Nothing takes place in history class 
where Brad is sleeping through yet another student's presentation. Through song, we learn that he wants to be a hero. First, however, he has to convince his teacher not to fail him. Brad concocts a storybook journey as Bradimus, and along with his sidekick Chadmire, they time travel and mash up history. King Arthur and Guinevere, Helen of Troy, and Jesus all participate in this improbable yet rollicking adventure. Laughs are plentiful, and this reading is particularly well staged by Ryan Emmons. Jacob Ben Schmuel, who played Chadmire, and Alan Blake Batchelor have written some quality character songs, especially I Want to Be a Knight for Guinevere and A Few Small Adjustments for King Arthur. These two were played by Destiny Ray and Robert Lee Toms, and both were excellent. As this show continues to develop, the long denouement needs to be tightened as this high-energy exercise drags towards its redemptive conclusion with repetitive messaging. A fine cast and ensemble have nicely showcased a promising, funny musical in development. In part two of the New York Musical Festival, we cover three new entries, Interstate, Wonder Boy, and Pedro Pan. Continuing my 2018 journey through the new musicals presented at NIMP, I'm struck by the topicality and relevance of the themes being explored. During the last month, I found myself in the middle of a conversation between privileged white people who are quite annoyed by the confusion of gender identity labels. I understand how hard it might seem to find pronouns so easily misunderstood these days. Two musicals ask us to consider this conversation from a different point of view. Perhaps rather than worrying about being criticized for calling someone a they instead of a she or a he, we consider applying some empathy, a sadly vanishing art, toward the individuals struggling through their complicated emotional development. The first piece we're going to discuss is a production called Interstate. Melissa Lee and Kit Yan have written a solidly constructed musical about a lesbian and a transgendered poet who's male-identified, they've found success as a musical duel called Queer Malady. Interstate asks and answers the question, can I make a life out of queer poetry? Interstate is the road tour journey these two take across the United States. They are played by John Victor Corpus and Angel Lynn. Along the way, we meet their parents, record company executives, small-minded locals, and most importantly, their online fans one of whom is Henry, a high school girl just coming to terms with her newly shared trans identity. Sushma Shaha inhabits Henry so completely that the emotional depth of the show is significantly deepened well beyond the semi-formulaic band-on-the-road trials and tribulations. Her song, I Don't Look, brings us deeply into her personal challenges. The score is quite good, and the song's Loser Dumplings and Everything Changes were particularly fine. Kudos to Andreas Weider, who played the radio talk show host, priest, drag performer, and others. He did outstanding ensemble character work. Overall, Interstate delivers on its promise to flood the stage with empathy, inspiration, and a large dose of heartfelt feelings. Next, we have a reading of the musical Wonder Boy, spelled V-O-I. Another musical about transgendered youth, Wonder Boy adds a superhero element for an interesting juxtaposition between an indestructible self-healing body 
versus one that has body image issues. Jay Jarrett wrote this musical and there are some effective songs, such as When He Flies and White Shoelaces. The plot, however, is wildly overwrought with a sister who is sort of a depressed, nutty, mad scientist. Think Dr. Jekyll spliced into a teenage after-school special. In this show, attention is focused on gender-defining labels and getting them accurate. The lecturing can admittedly be somewhat annoying. The dialogue veers from fun to preachy and back again, so I was never really invested in any of the characters. Here's an example of fun. Am I Wonder Boy? No, I'm Wonder Boy. That makes sense. You've always had a savior complex. But there are far more lines like, I've been homesick for a body I've never been in. And you can't blame your selfishness on being trans. Subtle metaphors stay away. This is a quote. Why is my lemony snicket book falling apart? Why aren't we built with better bindings? Unquote. For me, Wonder Boy never achieved liftoff. Our final entry in part two of Nymph is a production, the musical Pedro Pan. Rebecca Aparico and Stephen Anthony Elkins wrote this musical based on the real events of Operation Pedro Pan. From 1960 to 1962, more than 14,000 Cuban children arrived in the United States without their parents to escape the growing fears of communist indoctrination. Given today's news cycle, Pedro Pan could hardly be more relevant. What begins as a promising idea with Cuban flavor quickly turns generic, however. We Won't Stand Out could be a song in any show. Peter Pan is Pedro's favorite book, and it is referenced throughout resulting in dialogue like, If only you believe, then you can fly. One of his new friends is even named Wendy. Thankfully, the three friends have nice chemistry while they try to navigate the by-the-book schoolyard abuse. One great multidimensional performance by Natalie Toro as Pedro's Tia Lily provided some of the depth this material needed about the struggle of immigrants assimilating into American culture. Pedro Pan considers our country. Isn't America the land of immigrants? Yeah, but only the kind they like. Both topical and timely, I wish I liked this show more than I did. Now we'll travel downtown to the Irish Repertory Theater's production of On a Clear Day You Can See Forever. First, time for a fun fact. When Lane and Lerner's On a Clear Day You Can See Forever opened on Broadway in 1965, it had the unheard of top ticket price of $11.90. The original run had mixed reviews. A couple of songs scored, including Come Back to Me and the title song. The show was revamped before it went on tour with extraneous characters and songs dropped. Despite a so-so critical reception at the time, the 1970 Barbara Streisand movie is now considered by the American Film Institute to be one of the 100 greatest musicals ever. I remembered loving the score and the groovy 1960s era ESP plot device. So it was with great excitement that in 2011, I went to see the show starring Harry Connick Jr. It was one of the worst things I have ever seen on a Broadway stage and was scarily uncomfortable to watch bad. 
When I heard that Irish Rec was going to mount on a clear day, I hoped for a better showing to reconsider this piece. A few seasons ago, they revived Finian's Rainbow with Melissa Errico and Ryan Silverman, which was far superior to the good 2009 Broadway outing. Ms. Errico takes the helm again here as Daisy Gamble, a chain-smoking gal who has major talents, notably ESP, and an ability to make plants grow really, really fast. Miss Erico is wonderful here, in beautiful voice as usual, with a terrifically fun character to play. Essentially, On a Clear Day involves Daisy going to see Dr. Mark Brooker, played by the excellent Stephen Bogardus. She goes to him to be hypnotized so she can stop smoking. In this version, she's stopping for herself. The fiancé angle was cut. We quickly learn she has ESP and has also been reincarnated. Daisy was Melinda in the 18th century, in love with the cad Edward Moncrief, superbly played and sung by John Cudia. He was the 12th Phantom in Phantom of the Opera. What's so nice about this production is that the kooky plot is clearly understandable and the time changes are executed simply and effectively. Both Irish Rep revivals were beautifully directed by Charlotte Moore, a co-founder of this troupe. Although the stage is notoriously small, the score shines brightly, the jokes land firmly, and it's a very clear day indeed. The last Broadway outing messed with the storyline so that Daisy became Davy, but was still Melinda in a past life. Mr. Connick had to be in love with a Melinda, but the confusion over Davy made the whole thing a colossal mess. What I can guarantee you from this revival is that this musical, its tunes, and its quirkiness is getting a fine showcase to be enjoyed. I can also guarantee you that you will leave the theater and find it impossible not to be singing or humming or whistling on that clear day you can see forever and ever and ever more. More good news, this run has just extended into September. And on a side note, Melissa Errico and Ryan Silverman, who co-starred in Finian's Rainbow, will be performing together at 54 Below on August 6th and 7th. And back to Nymph we go. In part three of my reporting on the Nymph new musicals, we're going to talk about Illuminati Lizards from Outer Space, Healing Retreat, and Storming Heaven. The New York Musical Festival is presenting 30 new works this summer. These three were all presented as readings. A reading is simply a performance where the actors use scripts on music stands and the musical accompaniment is a piano with maybe one or two additional instruments. In each case, the actors are fully engaged in performing a character and a reader fills in any necessary script detail. As always, the subject matter variety at Nymph is evidenced with these three pieces in development. Conspiracy theories, spiritual gurus, and coal miners in early 20th century West Virginia. First up, the reading for the musical Illuminati Lizards from Outer Space. Conspiracy theories have been part of my life for a long time, as my parents, despite being ironclad Roman Catholics, believe many of them. The moon is an alien spacecraft is a more recent one. They are not alone. Millions upon millions 
believe stories that are unprovable and unverifiable. It's the formula that makes religion tick. Illuminati Lizards from Outer Space is based on the real and Googleable theory that alien lizards rule us here on Earth. Yuri Ronatschak and Paul Western Petard are the creators of this outrageously silly, highly enjoyable, promising new musical. A super dumb pageant queen loser, played by a brilliant Autumn Hilbert, is tricked into helping the inept lizards conquer the human race. A perfect Matt Allen plays Guy. He's the inky, sexually depraved lizard who proudly boasts he has two penises. The duo between these two called Spaced Out is musical comedy gold. The score is solid and the book still can be improved. But the show is already fun, if not quite brilliant like Bed Thugs. I can easily see this show in a long-running cabaret where drinks are served and the audience can get their conspiracy kicks. As the opening song promises, we're Illuminati lizards and we're coming to get ya. Now for our next reading. When I read the title of this new musical, Healing Retreat, A Life of Joy, I presumed that this was not going to be my cup of new agey tea. In the opening song, Yanni Lingam, Light and Love, my fears were amplified to terror. I listened to these words. You are the coral. You are the pearl. You are the seaweed gently dancing. Yikes. Quickly, the show turned into a goofy satire of spiritual retreats. Promising. The janitor of the retreat still has longings for the high school quarterback who happens to be a follower here now and previously picked on her nerdy husband. A couple is splitting up, but that's not really explored. Predictably, there's a gay coming out story. There are some good songs, but either the songs are too difficult to sing or the performers weren't quite up to the challenge. I think it's the former, as the vocal ranges required often left some sections off-key and or pitchy. The song Share It With The Man On The Moon was nicely sung and our nerd hero, anti-hero Ned, played by John Schartzer, had a great character song with the R&B flavored Tonight on Barry White. The plot devolves into a chaotic mess as the spiritual retreat is threatened by multiple coup d'etats. I was rooting for Chris Eagle, played by Sean Mullaney, who seemed to strike the right tone for his character in this oddball concoction. In the end, we learn that the secret of loving yourself is forgiveness. All the ridiculousness for that? And now another reading at Nymph. This one, Storming Heaven, the musical. Near the end of Act 1, the company performs the title song, Storming Heaven. The performers were ready to move ahead, but the audience wanted to keep clapping, and the show briefly paused. That's a really good sign for a new musical. The audience is engaged, invested, and appreciative. This musical is based on a novel of historical fiction by Denise Jardina. The plot centers around the coal miners of West Virginia in the early 20th century, leading up to one of the largest labor uprisings in United States history, the Battle for Blair Mountain. This is a story of oppression by big business and indifferent government against the struggling common man who thinks a union might be the answer to their struggles. The score is excellent. I made notes of the songs I particularly loved, but the list is too long to recite here. A great sign for a new musical.
The book is quite good, but adding a few coloring details might enhance the depth of the storytelling for these realistic, believable characters. As an example, the dialogue leading into I Can't Help Remembering gets us to the song, but we could perhaps hear a detail about the remembrance rather than just being told that it exists. Nitpicking, perhaps, but this show has the bones for bigger goals. And while I'm at it, one more thing concerning the opening number entitled Swing a Pick. Once you hear Bon Jovi's Wanted Dead or Alive in the melody, it's hard to unhear it. Overall, this musical by Katie Blake, Peter Davenport, Tracy Lawrence, who has had eight number one Billboard country singles, and Cliff Anderson, well, that show and score is a winner. One of the minor characters is an Italian woman whose immigrant husband is a minor. If Storming Heaven's book is pasta and its music is the sauce, then it's nearly dinner time. The sauce is already delicious, and the pasta is just shy of al dente. A couple of minutes and it'll be perfect. In 15 years, Nymph has presented 447 musicals. 106 of them have gone on to further productions in 50 states and 27 countries. The next three offerings range from a small, intimate fantasy tale to a story of Alzheimer's and its impact on a family to the lives of the emojis that live in your telephone. Let's start with Held, a musical fantasy, which was presented as a reading. Three people are trapped for 60 days in the prison of the blood wizard when Held begins. They cannot find any way out. Their bodies remain healthy despite not eating and not being hungry. In this darkness and in this situation, the opening song creates an effective sense of moodiness and mystery. This intimate three-character drama proceeds to fill in the blanks. Why are they trapped? How do these three know each other? One is the dreamer with magical conjuring skills, and the other two are non-dreamers. Like many fantasy stories, war is looming in the background. Held considers one's genetic makeup and the generations that came before as predictors for life's choices. While the book has some odd transitions, there is dialogue to savor. Inside the tent smells like sawdust and fresh bread. The threesome's group dynamic and growth is clear and logical, as is the story arc. Written by Kelly Maxwell and Megan Rose, this musical may need a few more songs to allow the audience to get further inside each character's head individually. I wanted to know more backstory. Held feels like a slice of a larger epic, which makes this small-scale piece especially effective, notably for fans of fantasy. Now to the production of If Sand Were Stone. Near the end of If Sand Were Stone, there is an intimate moment between a husband and his wife, Billy. She has been suffering from Alzheimer's for years, and the disease has taken its toll. This musical finally stops for a second to let a real emotional moment happen. It is far too late. We've already had to endure the spirits. Four doppelgangers? With a question mark? They dance move chairs around, and add nothing except distraction to the stage. They do occasionally spout fun facts about Alzheimer's, often smiling when doing so. At one point, Billy and her assistant sing If It Was a Dream, facing the dancers, not the audience. Who is the story being told to? 
The show was written by Carly Brooke Feynman and Cassie Wilson. I had trouble deciding about the songs. They often seemed discordant. Admittedly, my appreciation might have been affected by the staging. How far has Billy's memory loss deteriorated? She keeps watering plants, not remembering how often. This is performed in an interminable scene where the spirits dance with watering cans between four house plants back and forth. At one point, a movie is turned on for Billy to keep her occupied. A film starring the Three Stooges is projected on the screen for far too long. Not a great idea since that was what I was watching. I can't say whether if Sandler Stone is fixable, but killing the spirits and letting the characters tell the story might be a fairly obvious start. Next up, in full production, is the musical Emoji Land. What really happens inside your telephone when a system update is about to occur to emojis? That is the conflict successfully explored and hilariously exploited by Keith and Laura Nicole Harrison in their existential new musical, Emojiland. Leslie Margarita, who's always funny, plays princess. She currently rules the world inside your phone, and we quickly learn in the song that princess is a bitch. Many emoji favorites are characters here, including Sunny, Skull, Smize, who's a combination of smiling face and smiling eyes, and even Pile of Poo. While it might seem obvious that characters like Weary and Worry have negative emotions, there is tension even inside the sunniest pals. Skull, for example, sings, Cross my bones and hope to die. When the update happens, one of the new emojis is Nerdface, the catalyst for the plot. The score is catchy and delicious Broadway pop, with a number of songs reaching classic character song greatness. Angela Wildflower sings the exquisite A Thousand More Words beautifully, with welcome hints of the great Stephanie Mills. Musical theater songwriters to put on your radar, the Harrisons have written Nerd Guy and Smize for themselves. Both are perfectly cast. Emojiland is ready for prime time, and I expect the built-in fan base to be large. One plea. Can we add Dancing Lady and Red Dress Emoji, please? The New York Musical Festival is celebrating its 15th anniversary this summer. The next group of three shows journey through a magic storybook, consider life as a transgendered person during the Civil War, and take us through the tumultuous 1960s in the Vietnam War. Let's take a look at the production of What's Your Wish? Nicholas is 16 years old and did not get a car for his birthday, so he pouts and goes off to the attic. His best friend Brian joins him there, and they open a book called To Grant Wishes. Along with Corley Pillsbury, Kyle Atkinson, and Sam DeRost wrote the music and lyrics for this truly enjoyable musical. Mr. Atkinson and Mr. DeRost play Nicholas and Brian, our leads. The roles suit them nicely, and we are off on a kooky young Adonians friendly journey spiked with edgier adult flair. In the song, Up There, the line, admittedly I'm a bit depressed, is rhymed with, my situation's kind of Kafka-esque. The boy's journey involves being sucked into the book, where there is a death forest, an evil enchantress who drinks unicorn tears, a wingless fairy, and a rat. A virgin sacrifice is needed to solve the magical energy crisis. 
The book is credited to Thicket and Thistle, a troupe of actor-musicians. The result is a delightful blend of simple plotting, creative lighting, nice tunes, witty dialogue, and endlessly inventive staging. What's Your Wish has a message. Life doesn't go according to plan, so plan accordingly. What's Your Wish also has a superlative performance by Joshua Stensa in a handful of feature roles, including Old Vern the Rat, Mom's Boyfriend Donald, plus assorted noise-making characters and hilarious onstage hijinks. It's impossible not to wish a great future for this show. There is so much goodwill, good cheer, and high entertainment value from this spirited group of artists. Things turn more serious with the reading of The Civility of Albert Cashier. Albert is a Civil War hero for the North. He enlisted despite being female at birth, but clearly identifies as a man. The Civility of Albert Cashier is a nicely performed musical which improbably combines the transgendered experience with a brutal war. There are two Alberts on display. The young one looks like a bugle boy and not a soldier, but manages to fool everyone and join the army. The elderly Albert is under medical care and still fiercely secretive about his true identity. The book is all over the map. One of the soldiers is confusingly attracted to Albert, and it's telegraphed too early. An angry nurse confronts inequality and women's rights. A medical attendant is called a Nancy and sings a song to Albert about going to Chicago where their type can kick up their heels. Back and forth in time we travel. Death and prejudices are faced head on. By the time the older Albert faces his demons, the story has careened into a trans-manifesto intervention. Thankfully, the music and rhythms of this piece are very strong. An admirable effort to give a non-traditional view of the trans experience, the civility of Albert Cashier preached its messages a bit too bluntly for my taste. Our next reading is for the musical Victory Train. Nymph now takes me from the Civil War to the Vietnam War. A group of drafted young men have avoided going overseas since they are part of the Soldier Show, which functions as a patriotic recruiting vehicle. While they sing Ride the Victory Train, protesters in the background shout, Hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? The spine of this new musical is a relationship between Soldier Rick, the group's leader, and war protester Julie, who works in a coffee shop. Their brief love affair reconnects years later as the older versions of Rick and Julie also feature prominently in this time-shifting tale. The book and score have been written by David Buskin and Jake Holmes. There are some good songs in this show, but the frequent shifts in tone are troublesome. Victory Train is part melodrama and part musical comedy. The seriousness of war and killing sits uncomfortably alongside much lighter fare. The song Bad Girls lets us know that a man can, quote, fire at will because I got the pill. You know your ammunition won't change my condition, unquote. There is also the obligatory gay storyline and a look into America's racism, both of which are at least reasonably handled. All the sidetracking and wisecracking doesn't support the main dramatic arc, however. The Vietnam War in the tumultuous 1960s, packaged as a musical variety show and romantic melodrama with comedic diversions, is not an easy project to tackle or swallow. Taking a break from Nymph, 
Let's go uptown to the Park Avenue Armory and a production of The Damned. At one point during Ivo Van Hove's production of the interestingly creative yet maddeningly tortoise-paced production of The Damned, a crucial line appears in English supertitles. The complicity of the German people is the miracle of the Third Reich. A headline in the New York Times the day I wrote my review. Quote, as Trump struggles with Helsinki's fallout, Congress faces a new charge, complicity, unquote. A very interesting time for this piece to be showcased in the large Park Avenue Armory space in collaboration with the Comédie Française, who premiered this work at the Avignon Festival in 2016. The Damned is a renowned 1969 film by Lucino Visconti. It was nominated for a Best Screenplay Oscar and named Best Foreign Film by the National Board of Review. The plot centers around the Essenbeck family and their steelworks business as Adolf Hitler is coming to power in 1930s Germany. The story is a thinly veiled reference to the Essenbeck's Krupp family of steel industrialists. A soap opera that would make the TV show Dynasty blush the Damned has murders, double crossings, incest, child molestation, a homosexual orgy, and a row of coffins placed on the side of a massive set. The play begins with the 1933 burning of the Reichstag, home of the German parliament, one month after Hitler became chancellor. Building on anti-communist hysteria, the event was immediately politicized. Hitler convinced President Hindenburg to issue a decree suspending most civil liberties, including freedoms of expression, the press, the right of public assembly, as well as eliminating the secrecy of the post and the telegraph. Four months later, Hitler carried out a series of political executions in order to consolidate his power. The subjects of those attacks were the SA, known as stormtroopers, millions of whom helped the Nazis rise to power since the 1920s. The leader of the SA was Ernst Rahm, whose brutish behavior, heavy drinking, and homosexuality offended conservative elements. The Night of the Long Knives is portrayed as a stylized orgy scene before turning into a bloody execution. Using a camera, the play is also projected on a large screen. There are close-ups and historical footage used effectively to enhance the storytelling. My reaction was appreciation for creativity rather than a total embrace. The pacing was deliberately very slow. The repeating processions to the coffins was visually arresting the first time with diminished results thereafter. The orgy scene was indulgent and would have had the same impact in half the time. If The Damned was a half hour shorter, I believe it would have been just as stylized without also being plotting. The subject matter, however, is beyond intriguing for today's audiences. A politician rising to power attacking established personal freedoms, including the press? A political party embedding itself with the armament business? A warning that the complicity of people led to the end of democracy and the rise of the Third Reich? The play ends spectacularly. I walked out of the theater pondering how the tale of America at the beginning of the 21st century will be told 80 years from now. After the dam, I needed to lighten the mood, so I headed up to 54 Below to see Pump Boys and Dinettes. Opening on Broadway in 1982, 
Pump Boys and Dinettes was a well-received country-styled musical review. The boys from the gas station on Highway 57, the Pump Boys, and the girls from the Double Cup Diner across the street, the Dinettes, put on an old-fashioned entertainment for their customers. Five of the six surviving cast members reunited for a two-show concert at 54 Below, Broadway Supper Club. Never having seen this Tony Award Best Musical nominee, it lost to nine, I decided to check out this sold-out reunion. The diner is located somewhere near Smyrna, North Carolina. The actor-musicians perform the songs on guitar, bass, piano, and kitchen utensils. The whisk on Cheese Grater was particularly genius. The tunes are country pop rock, and they were very good. T-N-D-P-W-A-M was a terrific storytelling song about the night Dolly Parton was almost mine. The Ladies Lament Tips and the song Farmer Tan were also memorable standouts for me. The original cast wrote all of these songs, and it was a treat to see them and their adoring audience of many theater professionals celebrating this musical 36 years later. Curious to see a show you may have missed? Enjoy intimate supper clubs with great sound that serve delicious food and cocktails? Yes? Combine those two passions and check out a reunion at 54 Below. This is my third one. Sideshow and the Drowsy Chaperone were the others. The verdict on Pump Boys and Dinettes? Of the original, Time Magazine said the show tickles the funny bone. Newsweek said the songs were cheery, relaxed, and amiable. I agree. Now to Broadway we go, and the play Straight White Men, presented by the Second Stage Theater. If you desire to see the oddest pre-show at a Broadway house, then Straight White Men should be on your list. The music is thump, 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 party loud. A woman apologizes to audience members and hands out earplugs if you want them. The elderly folks seem annoyed. The woman promises that the music will turn off at the start of the play and will never come back on, but the reason it's playing so loud will make sense. I won't spoil the surprise by telling you the reason. It does make some sense. It has absolutely nothing to do with the play that follows. Odd is the word for this overly forced exercise in lecturing. Speaking of forced, Straight White Men is about three brothers and a father spending Christmas together. These are the most liberal white men in the history of the universe. Their deceased mother repurposed their Monopoly game as one called Privilege. The brothers seem very close, and typical familial memories are shared and reenacted. At their age, the physical antics don't seem entirely credible, but they are very funny. The comedic part of this play works very effectively. Army Hammer, of the movie Call Me By My Name, and Josh Charles are two of the brothers, and they deliver top-notch laughs. This play works best as a comedic send-up of upper-middle-class white guys having a jolly time. Older brother Matt's childhood anthem protesting the all-white casting of Oklahoma at his grade school is truly memorable. Unfortunately, we have a serious issue lurking not too far under the surface. Matt, played by Paul Schneider, has taken a life turn and is now living at home with Dad. Everyone is analyzing him out loud. One theory is that he recognizes his white privilege and is purposely setting his career aside so that a non-white individual can have his opportunity in life. Did I say the most liberal family ever? I did indeed. This half of the story is, at best, 
mildly interesting. At its worst, the dialogue is stilted and strains credibility. Did the playwright Young Jin Lee shoot for intellectual farce? The therapy session is played very seriously, so the story turns odd, like the opening pre-show. Maybe that's the connection. Apparently, straight white men are imperfect people too, so feeling sorry for them now is allowed? Hmm. Half a really funny play doesn't quite make up for the other half, which is exaggerated baloney. Now let's go downtown to a musical I was really looking forward to at the Atlantic Theatre Company, the production of This Ain't No Disco. Those of us who came of age in the late 1970s have a memory of a New York City that was magical, gritty, glamorous, decadent, and dirty. In this era, the famed Studio 54 and Mud Club were born, conquered, and faded into memory. This musical is the story of the strivers, drifters, and dreamers who are clamoring for their position, not only in these clubs, but also more generally in the downtown art scene. Stephen Trask, the composer of the St. No Disco, knows how to write music and lyrics from the period, as evidenced in his brilliant score for Hedwig and the Angry Inch. There are some good songs here as well, but this musical ain't no disco. The set promises the gritty New York of the late 1970s, Everywhere you look is filled with images from the 42nd Street Porno Theater marquees. What appears on stage, though, is sanitized go-go dancers, not coke-fueled party hedonists. Part goofy mockumentary, part serious documentary, part if-I-can-make-it-here-I'll-make-it-anywhere story, this Ain't No Disco focuses on a number of oft-told stories. Gay kid kicked out from home turns tricks in New York before his discovery by Steve Rubell, the Studio 54 impresario, and his momentary fame. He meets a single mom who's striving to create a singing career. Cue the artist, an obvious Andy Warhol, who sees brilliance in her shabbiness. The show never really settles on a tone varying from serious issues like cutting to a biting parody of self-promotion. The direction and choreography are borderline frenetic. The set moves back and forth, the stagehands keep very busy. The dancers are sweating. They work very hard. There are some decent songs. Here's what's wrong with This Ain't No Disco. The artist, cue Andy Warhol, well, the artist sings a big ballad that could easily double as an anthem by the rock band U2. In fact, it sounds exactly like a vehicle for Bono. The odd genius Andy Warhol starts the show famously meek to becoming an offensively abusive manager to then self-analyzing himself through a power ballad over the course of this musical. Huh? Exiting the theater, I overheard one man say, I loved it. His companion replied, that's going to challenge our friendship. Maybe if you know nothing about Studio 54, you'll find the story amusing. For me, this was simply a wasted opportunity to recreate an iconic New York slice of history. Now let's go back to Broadway and the musical head over heels. The magic that is musical theater allows for the improbable to be born. Jeff Witte conceived a musical based on the Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia, written by Sir Philip Sidney towards the end of the 16th century, with songs written by the new wave pop band the Go-Go's towards the end of the 20th century. The mashup is not subtle. In this revision, the realm of Arcadia is famed for its beat, hence the opener, we got the beat. 
Head Over Heels is a tale of a king and a queen, two princesses in need of suitors, and prophecies from the Oracle of Delphi. Fun is in abundance in this show, staged as an old-school musical comedy entertainment, complete with clamshell lights on the stage. The original story is famous for its coverage of sex, politics, and cross-dressing. Which suitor will our princesses pick? And why? Let's just say that the tagline from The Drowsy Chaperone would work here. Mix-ups, mayhem, and a gay wedding. Head Over Heels received advanced publicity for hiring Peppermint, a transgendered performer and finalist from RuPaul's Drag Race. Broadway has its first trans character originated by a performer who is trans. Playing the Oracle Pythio, Peppermint's acting, though, is just okay. Everyone else in this frothy frolic is spot on. As Musidorus, the shepherd who fancies a young princess Philoclea, Andrew Duran is simply hilarious, culminating with an Act Two slapstick routine that affirms his place as show-stealer of Amazonian proportions. Not to be outclassed, Bonnie Milligan's vainly beautiful princess can dish out the comedy and belt go-go tunes despite the illogical-sounding concept of a go-go's tune actually being belted. Miss Milligan shines brightly in the role. All of this nicely orchestrated farce has been directed by Michael Mayer, who's previously worked on Hedwig and the Angry Inch, Thoroughly Modern Millie, and Spring Awakening. Head Over Heels is an odd combination of ye old England and songs which admittedly seem a bit thin musically for the Broadway stage. Get past that, and I did, and you will enjoy a fizzy, lusty tale of love, desire, freedom, and tolerance. The set design by Julian Crouch enhances the story with clever visual delights. Special thanks to the sound designer Kei Harada for an ideal blend of voice and music, never allowing the band to overshadow the vocals. Who is the audience for Head Over Heels? People who want to be entertained in an evenly paced, bawdy, old-school, relaxed, witty way. If you know the song Mad About You, all the better. Continuing in the Broadway vein, the next play is a revival of The Boys in the Band. In 1968, The Boys in the Band opened off-Broadway and ran for 1,001 performances before being turned into a movie. At the time, the play was revolutionary for its depiction of gay men on stage. Considered groundbreaking, the opinions of this piece vary. Some viewed the portrayals as self-homophobic, low-esteem characters. Others saw the play as a coming out of the closet for the gay rights movement that followed. For its 50th anniversary, The Boys in the Band has been revived on Broadway with a cast of openly gay actors. Jim Parsons is Michael, and he's hosting a birthday party for his best friend Harold, played by Zachary Quinto. The party banter is bitchy shade before alcohol and pot open some serious wounds. Think, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf with extra sharp knives? The catalyst for the drama is Michael, who has been trying to stay off the bottle. A surprise visit from his college roommate has him trying to control the boys into acting straight. Hard to do, and one of the birthday gifts is a hustler dressed as the Midnight Cowboy. A party game drama unfolds and then explodes. The laughs are in huge supply, as are the depths of anguish. The play confronts the hatred and self-deprecation faced by some homosexuals head-on. Some found the picture painted too bleakly. The story is indeed rough, but like it or not, there are characters in this play 50 years later who still ring true. The Boys in the Band is a period piece for sure. 
Joe Mantello's strong directorial hand, and the entire cast's finely detailed performances add color and nuance to the words, giving us a staging worth celebrating. A year after this play was first produced, the Stonewall riots occurred and the gay liberation movement took shape. While the boys in the band flirts with gay stereotypes and aggressively embraces negative emotions, its existence is undeniably important to the history of LGBT rights in America. For that reason alone, the play is essential viewing. The fact that this revival is so good is a happy 50th birthday bonus and a beacon for continuing forward, not backward, down the yellow brick road towards tolerance and freedoms for all. The next three musicals at Nymph deal with the tension surrounding the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago, Irish Americans who chose to fight in World War II, and, on a lighter note, a parody of Spider-Man. The first production is titled simply 68. The conceit for this show is intriguing. A librarian wants to interview and record stories from people who are connected to the rioting that occurred in Chicago during the 1968 Democratic National Convention. Attending this musical with someone born nearly 30 years later is illuminating. Unless you know this story well, 68 will be an incoherent jumble of names and vignettes. The lyrics had no depth and were simplistic. An example. Most of the kids are peaceful. Most of them will play fair. We don't want to shoot them just because they have long hair. On the bus, the conventioneers sway and sing a four-word song. Where are you from? Make that five words. Towards the end of this repeating one-line chorus, the word coming is added in, as in, where are you coming from? The book uses absurd phrases like, they are threatening to use Molotov cocktails and nudity. But this is not a comedy. The low point comes late in Act 2, when a Vietnamese woman slowly walks in behind the ensemble wearing an Asian conical hat. The screen is projected with a yellow color. The category is Miss Saigon Realness. She begins singing, All the chickens in the hen house have a name, have a name. Why does a mother superior like none appear singing alongside? Near the end of the show, The Lucky Ones was a storytelling character song which finally illuminated what this musical might have been. Next, one of my favorites of the festival is a production of An American Hero, a World War II musical. Ireland was neutral during the Second World War, choosing not to fight alongside Great Britain. Those who did were blacklisted and their families became outcasts. An American Hero is the story of first-generation Irish-American brothers who hear the call of duty and enlist. This accomplished show takes us on a journey from the Bronx to the battlefields in France to the munitions factory floor in Elizabeth, New Jersey. A project developed at Southeast Missouri State University, the book is by Professor Kenneth L. Stilson with music and lyrics by Cody Cole, a recent graduate. The score is filled with gems like the Telegraph-inspired Waiting on the Mailman. The ensemble was larged and used well. All of the battle scenes were superbly staged, not an easy feat, as the brothers at the center of the story, Adam Schween and Jose Alpazar, beautifully portray these characters and finally perform rich emotional songs. Volt delivered two of the best performances at this festival. 
the sweeping score feels appropriate to the time period and nicely moves the story forward. A note to make this very strong show even better would be to further develop the female characters, including the ensemble. The idea works, but doesn't yet feel as organically real as the men. Much of this cast has traveled to Nymph from the university. Their youth, particularly in the gut-wrenching war scenes, it hits us hard, as it should. So many men who lost their lives protecting our freedoms were so very young. Three of us attended an American hero together, fought back tears, and were unanimous in our praise. Congratulations to this cast and creative team for an exceptionally fine piece of theater. Later in the day that I saw an American hero, thankfully, I saw Peter Who, which lightened the mood. When parodies are done well, they can be extraordinarily fun shows to watch. They can also be very successful, such as Off-Broadway's current Puffs, or seven increasingly eventful years at a certain school of magic and magic. Peter Who is a silly, funny, entertaining take on Spider-Man. The show is a welcome addition to Nymph by a creative team defying gravity and having fun with the musical comedy form. The jokes are plentiful. The school stud Flash, who doesn't even see Peter Parker as a person, well, he drinks green tea, but not a lot, just enough to say I drink it. At the Daily Bugle newsroom, Betty informs us that, I'm like a Honda Civic. Turn me on once and I'm good for a year. My favorite line? A narrow mind gets fewer headaches. The set design has clever handheld comic book cutouts. When our hero is swinging between buildings, it is far more entertaining than in the movies. Songs are tuneful and hilarious, as they need to be. The entire cast seems to be having a ball, and as a result, so does the audience. Peter Who is not yet at the highest level of zaniness on display at Puffs. All the necessary ingredients are in evidence. Inserting a few more great jokes, and this piece could make people smile from ear to ear, from start to finish. Our final entry in this very long episode of Theater Reviews from my seat, yes, it's been a busy theater-going month, our final entry is from the Encore's Summer Series and the musical Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope. In 1973, Stephen Sondheim's A Little Night Music won Best Musical over Stephen Swartz's Pippin. They remain well-known, oft-performed musicals. Also Tony-nominated that year was Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope. Finette Carroll was the first African-American woman to direct on Broadway. With music and lyrics by Mickey Grant, both were also the first black women nominated in their respective categories. How historic and rare? Other than Miss Carroll's second directing nomination for the show Your Arms Too Short to Box with God, the next African-American woman to be recognized for direction was Liesl Tommy for the play Eclipsed, 43 years later. This is exactly the type of show to be rediscovered at Encores. Outstanding in every regard from start to finish, Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope is a combination of cabaret, revival meeting, and protest performed through song and dance. In this version, the original score has been rearranged and shortened to one act. This musical contains 24 songs and there are no lulls. Great song after great song from start to finish with varied musical styles including gospel, jazz, and calypso. The performers were all excellent. Savion Glover, for Bringing the Noise, Bringing the Funk, 
masterfully directed and choreographed Don't Bother Me. The show had an effortless blend of song and dance, both soft and loud, with serious and playful. I believe this show is so strong and so topical, it demands a full revival. Or just transfer this version as is, it's that great. The African-American experience is explored in Don't Bother Me. Naturally, the topics covered include slavery, racism, assassinations, and housing. Significantly, this musical is also about coping with the daily and systemic slights faced by a race of people in America way back in 1972. Updating the gorgeous song, Time Brings About a Change, the lyric, Archie Bunker, was replaced four decades later with Roseanne. Doesn't that help illuminate why people are kneeling at football games? What's particularly impressive about this musical is that anger is not expressed through negative emotions. There is hurt and despair under the surface, but somehow the show coalesces into a musical entertainment. Ms. Grant's songs are used to embrace the audience and vividly share its messages without a bullhorn. The spectacularly performed song, Looking Over From Your Side, could not be more timely. Considering another's point of view is in short supply in today's America. Perhaps a wide, diverse audience needs Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope Now, so that we can all cope better than we are. Thank you for listening to this episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. Next month, we're going to travel to Chicago to see a new musical called Something in the Game about the legendary football coach from the University of Notre Dame, Newt Rockney. I'm also going to travel to Boston to see the musical Moulin Rouge based upon the film of the same name. I'm very much looking forward to the Mint Theater's revival of a Lillian Hellman play, Days to Come. And finally, we'll wrap up Nymph, the New York Musical Festival, with the final three productions, which occur in the first week of August, and sort of wrap that series up. If you have any comments or suggestions for a theater piece to be reviewed, you can send an email to theaterreviewsfrommyseat at comcast.net. You can also sign up for email subscriptions to current reviews at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. <laughs>